Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, I'm David Kermode. Welcome to The Drinking Hour, highlights of Series 7, where we are celebrating some legendary names in the world of drinks writing. Hugh Johnson, OBE, has spent 60 years writing on the subject of wine and gardening too, actually. Margaret Rand has worked closely with him and she tells us about editing his pocket wine book and her 40 years writing about wine. S.E. Avalan, M.W., might not have been at it quite as long, but she is one of the most influential judges in the world of champagne. Her scores eagerly anticipated. Schloss Gobelberg's Michael Musbrugger is one of the most important figures in Austrian wine, running the Österreichische uh, Traditionswein Gutter. Uh, then there's Daniel Primack, who knows all there is to know about glassware. He tells us why our choice of wine glass is so important to our enjoyment of what is inside it. And it's not all about wine because rum is the new big thing. And we'll hear from Global Rum Ambassador and IWSC Judging Panel member Ian Burrell to hear about the inspiration for his own brand of rum. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. One of the greatest names in wine, Hugh Johnson, OBE, is one of the world's best-selling authors on the subject. Having spent 60 years in the business of writing, he has now released a new, updated version of his autobiography, uh, The Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson. And he very kindly invited me to his Kensington home, uh, where I started by rather cheekily suggesting that his taste in wine was somewhat traditional. Oh, I'm as square as you can be. <laughs> um, I've always loved claret, uh, and I see no reason to change. And whether it's just a matter of habit, I suppose it is. But I, I uh, we drink more claret than any other red wine in this house. And um, well, last night we had a very nice fifth growth, no, an unclassified wine from the Solvago area, uh, Chateau Coltemel. Uh, which is utter joy to me. It's got no pretensions. It's not a big wine. Uh, Robert Parker wouldn't approve of it. He would call it a little sort of meagre thing. But that it, again, its acidity is at the heart of it. It's ref- bottled refreshment. Acid and tannin are very, very prominent in it. You know, there are there, there is character along with the sort of fruit uh, of the Cabernet and the Merlot. But the structure of the wine is quite, you might say, severe. And I, I just love that. I don't like floppy wines. Who does? Uh, uh, how has um, Bordeaux then evolved in the time uh, that you've been writing about wine, which is, is well over 60 years? Hmm. I suppose it has evolved, but only in getting better, really. I mean, I don't, the style of the best 
Bordeaux today is not so very different, although there were temptations in the days, again, of Robert Parker and high scoring and that kind of thing to make it, to, to pick later, to emphasise the, 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 the fruit and, and so on. I don't think that the average maker of red Bordeaux, and, and, and he has a cru bourgeois, say, a good crew bourgeois. I don't think he's aiming at anything very different except greater ripeness, and that's always desirable because then it gives the winemaker uh, more um, more opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's changed that much. I'd be rather upset if it did. Uh, talking of upset, uh, you don't actually see eye-to-eye with Robert Parker on much, do you? No, far from it. I first encountered Robert Parker in 1978 because we had the same editor in New York, Dan Green of Simon & Schuster. And um, I was doing the proofs of one book or another, 1978, I can't quite remember what. Uh, And in his office, and he passed me a manuscript and he said, Hugh, what do you think of this? And I started to read it. I said, God, who wrote this? This is amazing. Some of the most sort of punchy tasting notes I've ever read in my life. Uh, I looked at the margin and there there was a vintage and then there was a number, 89, 93, something like that. And I said, that's terrific notes, but what are these numbers about? He said, they're the scores. And I said, scores? You can't score wine. Can you score music? How is... um, I suppose the marriage of Figaro is a 99 or something, but uh, you can't do it. Wine is not that kind of thing. It's, um, there's, there's a lot of objectivity in judging it. There's also a lot of subjectivity in it. However, I lost that round, that round and all the other rounds since everybody now does it. And it's still the total rubbish that it was at the beginning. So Parker points, Parker not points. something you've ever been very Absolutely. keen on. I have never scored a wine. That's not quite true, because sometimes at a trade tasting, say, you're trying to sort out, basically it's your preferences. You know, you're supposed to give three marks for colour or something. Well, what's what absolute rubbish? I mean, what is a good colour? What is a bad colour? Is, is it for how dark it is? How bright it is? I mean, how typical it is? That kind of thing. If you start scoring, you run into all sorts of problems like that. In the end, you just quite subjectively say I think this is 17 or something and Jancis indeed gets stuck between 16 and 17 in almost everything she tastes there are a lot of 16.5s aren't there yeah Yeah. I mean to be fair to play devil's advocate Parker might say uh, I've never met him Jancis might say um, that uh, this is a useful guide uh, to a Mm. consumer yes uh, consumers, I mean, if they take it completely at face value, and that is how they they uh, choose their wines, they are missing an awful lot. They're buying ready-made opinions that are subjective, that they're vague. That the other thing I think is so wrong is the uh, apparent precision of a score. You know, a 94 wine must be better than a 93. Well, what on earth does that mean? What is better? Do you like it more? I mean, there is no real logical, consistent grounding for that 
scoring system and sure it's a useful indication and sure it's quicker to read numbers than it is words and I'm not surprised it's a success but it has become universal you know can hardly offer a wine without showing I think in supermarkets they say this is a 96 point wine okay you're rushed you don't have time you don't think you don't have a sort of basis for judgment you just say right that looks reasonable, you know, not a bad price for a 96er, so I'll, I'll try it. And of course, it leads to all sorts of wonderful jokes, like the guy in a New York bottle shop who comes back with a bottle that he bought the night before, and he said, um, he says to the storekeeper, he, he said, I, I tried to drink this wine last night, it is completely filthy. And the storekeeper says, a Parker gave it, gave it 95. Oh! I'll take a case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming, uh, given what you've written about the wines that you love, and given what you've written about what you're less keen on, the, the way oak is used, for example, then you wouldn't see eye to eye with uh, Parker on very much in terms of uh, what he might rate in a wine. In, in terms of personal taste, no. In terms of... Um perceiving quality which is something else you know it's impossible to define or explain really but sometimes you know class quality is something almost apart from the flavor uh, some wines have a sort of authority they have a the physical terms they we call them long they, they last a long time in your mouth which is a great gauge of quality and they have balance and the the you know, the sum, it, 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 sometimes one plant, two plus two, equals more than four in, in wine. It, it sort of speaks to more than simply your taste buds. It's very hard to explain, but I think that's where great wines rise to a level where you just think, well, how could that be improved on? You can't, and it's say, saying something unique. It's expressing the, 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 the grape, the place, the maker, uh, the vintage, the maturity or the lack of maturity, all these things are in its own language. Um, and, uh, and that's what's so special about wine. You say in the book, uh, great wines don't make statements, they pose questions. Yes, yeah. yeah I did say that and I'll, st- <laughs> I'll, stay, I'll stay with that. It really, a great wine doesn't sort of wrap itself up and say there I, there you are that's what I am it says there's more to me than it meets the eye uh, and you go on looking for it which gives you more than satisfaction it gives you curiosity you think how did it get to that uh, in the introduction to the latest book uh, Eric Kazinov says uh, uh, the life and wines of Hugh Johnson is about generosity of thought and feeling uh, you do quite a lot of um, sort of thinking allowed rather than telling don't you <laughs> yes i suppose i do um i think it's what writers do i mean it, it, it's easy to write it's a lot of research but it's re- relatively relatively easy to write an encyclopedia uh to write something which is going to interest people and encourage them and um make them want to find out more uh, in, in, engage their curiosity. I think that's a bit harder, and that's what I've always tried to do. 
and you do it uh, very successfully. Uh, I was talking to um, an esteemed editor uh, about uh, your writing um, some time ago now, and uh, we both concluded that you could probably write about anything and make it interesting. It's an early critic, actually. After my first book, which was just called Wine, the four, my favourite four-letter word, uh, in 1966, uh, the reviewer said, I would read every uh, word that Hugh writes, even if he were writing about coal mining. <laughs> and I'm fairly certain that Hugh's book on coal mining would be highly readable, uh, should he ever decide to pen it. Which brings us neatly to Margaret Rand, the doyen of wine writing. She's been at it for 40 years and is the general editor of Hugh Johnson's Pocket Wine Book, an enduring title that's now in its 46th year. Uh, they've worked together for at least 15 years, but Hugh has now handed over the reins. Yes, he has. It was an incredibly generous and typically generous thing for him to do. Because, you know, he didn't need to, but he just thought that he would. And now he's completely taken a back seat. He doesn't interfere. I mean, I quite often have a chat to him if I have a problem. You know, what do you think about this? Because we, our views tend to be aligned and it's useful to have a second opinion. But no, he's, taken, he's completely out of it now. So it's all my fault. And he is one heck of a guy to ask for advice because he has so much knowledge, doesn't he? And has known everybody. He's known absolutely everybody um, all over the world. So his, he has a, a store of anecdotes that really would keep any room entertained. Yeah, and they kept uh, our podcast entertained uh, a couple of months back as well. It was a, a lovely addition. Um, you've been involved in the guide uh, for many years, haven't you? Yes, I mean, it's probably 15. I can't honestly remember. It just seems to have been more or less forever. Well, it's uh, an honour, really, because um, it's been a stellar success over the years. Um, it, it has this uh, legion of, of followers, doesn't it? Yes, it does. There are, well, I sincerely hope there are people who buy it every year. I know there are people who buy it every year. We do do a very thorough update every year, so it is it is new every year. We're not lazy about it at all. <laughs> we rarely put our backs into it. You can't possibly know everything about everywhere. Uh, it must be impossible. So how do you deal with that? Because it's very comprehensive. I've got a lot of contributors all over the world, 31 or something, I can't remember, but there are an awful lot of them. And they're in. They're mostly living in the countries they're writing about. One or two are based here, but mostly they're based abroad in the in the countries in which they specialise. So they've got their feet on the ground and they know exactly what's going on. And without that, they, you couldn't do it. One person simply cannot keep tabs on things to that extent. You know, when when the book started, it was much much smaller, much thinner, much more white space. Now, if there's a bit of white space, we think, oh, we can fill it. We can put some words in there. So we, it's crammed. It's really crammed. And there's no way of making it less crammed, really, because every year the wine world expands. There are new producers, new wines, new things to go in. I find myself saying no an awful lot. It's very sad. <laughs> I can imagine. General Editor is a great title. Um, it kind of conjures up a military leader, perhaps a dictator. But uh, how do you go about um, how do you go about putting it all together? Because it's it, there is so much in there in in what is actually not a significantly enormous amount of space. We use a lot of abbreviations and we just compress everything madly. It's all done on a database, so you can check word counts very easily, and it helps a lot. But we compress everything. You'll see it's full of abbreviations 
we, if we, instead, we don't write out Bordeaux, we put BX. Um, we don't write out Burgundy, we put B-U-R-G. And you know, all these abbreviations, which sound like nothing on their own, but together they add up to an awful lot of safe space. I do worry sometimes that it makes it a bit hard to read. You know, that's, that's what the book is. It's very abbreviated and, and compact. Yes. I mean, I don't think it does make it hard to read because it's uh, I, I was uh, flicking through it at the weekend. And, and it is amazing how quickly you get used to all those abbreviations. And although at face value, when you first look, you think, oh, what's that one? I'll have to think about that very rapidly. And of course, there's an index where you can check anyway. But very quickly, you just get used to it, don't you? Well, I hope so. I mean, things like CHX for Chateau is pretty obvious. Cab so for Cabernet Sauvignon is pretty obvious. We, we try not to make them too obscure. <laughs> yeah, and I think you do a, a good job. In the introduction, you say uh, that uh, wine does not taste the way it used to. And you're not necessarily saying it's, it's better or worse. You're not making a, a judgment call there. But tell us what you mean. Well, you referred earlier to my many decades of writing about wine. Um, actually, 40 years this year, I should be having a party. Will you come if I have a party? I hope you will. I will most certainly come, yes. Oh, good. Wine then was, it was just the beginning of New World wines coming on the scene. And ripeness was the great target. And, you know, Australian Chardonnay arrived and it tasted of fruit. And we thought this was the most marvellous thing. And that changed wine. Wine changed dramatically in the 80s. And then it began to get, reds began to get very extracted and very muscular and very tannic with the advent with the increasing popularity of Robert Parker and the style of reds that he liked, until that became a distortion, to, in my view, of what wine should be. And now that has gone out of fashion, because fashion is terribly important in, in, in wine. It, it rules styles. Now fashion has come back to fresher, lighter wines. Uh, ripeness is much easier now with, with, with climate change. It's the, you know, the good side of climate change, which one's not supposed to say. I'd probably get trolled for that. <laughs> um, of course, climate change is very dangerous. We know this. But an awful lot of the classic regions of the world have come into their comfort zone in the last few years. And some are on the edge of going out of it the other side. So it is going to be a problem. But we have ripeness now with the greatest of ease and the battle is for acidity. And that's the opposite of what it was like when I came into it. That's uh, astonishing, really. You have seen in 40 years the climate, as well as fashion, the climate changing wine. Yes. And of course, there were quite a lot of very cold years in the first half of the 20th century. It was not a, a warm period at all. Um, and it was a struggle to get grapes ripe, even in the most propitious sites. But now it's a struggle for acidity everywhere, really. And we're starting to see things like north-facing sites, which uh, would have been a no-no in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, uh, uh, suddenly becoming uh, talked about favourably, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. And sites that were too cold before. Sites in Germany and in the, the Mosel Valley, which were too cold to ripen wines, and they were just abandoned. And you went there a few years ago, and they were just covered in weeds and brambles. They'd simply been abandoned. And now a lot of them are being brought back into cultivation because... They, they get that cool climate that everybody wants now. Another thing that has happened uh, in your 40 years has been a lot closer to home. I talked to Dermot Segru uh, back in the summer and he told a lovely story about Hugh Johnson and Tony Lathwaite having a chat with him and then both saying that in their many years in the wine business, 
Um, they never imagined that English wine uh, would be something that could be taken seriously. Is that, is that a sort of sentiment that you, you kind of feel as well, calling on your many years of experience? Yes, totally. I'm a huge fan now of English sparkling wine. I think it is the top wines are as good as any champagne you care to mention. They're made, of course, in much smaller quantities, but they are really astonishingly good. And no, I would never have believed it because it used to be a rather small scale amateurish sort of industry when everybody thought that it was rather jolly to be making wine. And if they planted a few vines in their backfield, then that was all very great fun. And now, partly it's climate change that has made it possible to get these grapes a bit riper. Partly it's serious amounts of money going in. Quite often money made in the city or in tech companies being put into estates. And they, you know, they can afford to really do it well because sparkling wine needs a lot of, it needs a long-term investment because you've got to plant then you've got to wait for the grape for the vines to get old enough, and then you've got to wait for the for the, the wine in bottle to age. So you've got to have very deep pockets in the long term, and they have, and it shows, and the what the results are fantastic. An exemplar of that uh, might be Exton Park, because you select uh, some of the most significant wines that you've tasted over the last year in the guide, which I very much enjoyed uh, reading. Uh, and one of them is uh, an Exton Park uh, reserve blend. I think it's the RB45 from memory. Can't find it in the book right now at this moment. But um, uh, this is uh, made by Corin Seeley, who was a guest a few months ago on The Drinking Hour, led, as, as the name suggests, by reserve blends. You need a lot of money to do that kind of thing, don't you? Yes, because you've got to keep wines for a long time. And you've got to be able to afford to keep wines back from your annual crop and not sell them in order to have them there in reserve. And as I was talking about um, tech money and city money a moment ago, I realised, of course, Dermot is not, of course, in that bracket. He is um, a very small scale and has struggled and has got two tiny vineyards that he acquired, you know, by great determination. And he's probably the best winemaker in England. He's Irish, of course. That lovely blend they're doing now, Moving away from vintage wines to get that beautiful balance and depth that you get putting reserve wines in. It's wonderful. To another doyen, this time someone completely immersed in champagne. It's no exaggeration to say that Essie Avalan MW can shift the price of a top cuvee with one of her scores or tasting notes or both. So who better to compile the first ever comprehensive champagne report for Club Enologique? She told me all about it. So the idea really is to taste through um, most of the offering, uh, current offering on the markets. So we decided to start uh, with um, with uh, the Grand Marks, the Maison, uh, some of the cooperatives. But it was it's such a big task that will then continue next year with uh, with a special grower uh, champagne report. Mm. So the idea is basically to see where, uh, who is where uh, now, uh, what sort of vintages are coming on the market, any surprises, um, basically to find uh, the best uh, purchases on the market. And it's uh, a fascinating uh, report. I'm going to come to some of the elements that you've, you've pulled out of it in your introduction fairly shortly. But how many champagnes are you tasting to put something like this together? 
Yeah, we tasted, I tasted around uh, 350 uh, champagnes specifically for this report. So it was done uh, during a week um, in August in London. And as I understand it, you don't taste blind for this. You're, you're aware when you're tasting of, of the label, if you like. Yeah, it was actually, we, um, we decided to do it this way because, you know, um, I think that it gives more insight um, to the to the reader um, because you know there are a lot of uh, blind tasting competitions around um, which don't really give much insight um, about the producer, about the vintage, and so forth. So this sort of gives uh, me the possibility to do just that: talk a little bit about the producer, um, the making of that particular wine, um, that particular vintage. Um, and it was actually a great thing to be able to taste each and every producers, you know, all the cuvées side by side. It was really nice to to get to see them all in, in perspective. Mm, I bet it was. Uh, I've tasted uh, alongside you a few times and I know many people who've tasted alongside you. And you basically are sufficiently experienced. You actually will recognise a champagne generally by its signature, even if you are tasting blind, won't you? Yeah, I mean, many, many of the styles are obviously recognizable um, in their styles, but it's not something in a blind tasting that I try to do. I just actually try to to um, to assess the wine as it is showing in the glass. But this time now that I was tasting openly, it was really to capture, you know, the house style and uh, and compare it to the to the um, say previous vintages and previous um, non vintage cuvées. Well, let's address some of your conclusions in the report which as I said are are fascinating Um, there are positives and also a few negatives as well Um, addressing the latter first um, you have a concern and I'm going to quote uh, that with demand currently outstripping supply the champagne market is fast becoming overheated Uh, explain what you mean yeah, I mean now with this uh, with this huge post-COVID boom of champagnes, I mean they sort of um, were very careful with the production volumes um, in the in the past um, two three years, and actually the market completely surprised um, the champagne producers, and there's a huge a huge demand at the moment, and I could feel in the report that I had especially some non-vintages that that tasted very, very young at the time. So probably they've been brought onto the market some months earlier than than usual, uh, which sort of does does um, affect um, the, the quality and the points a little bit. It was quite uh, extraordinary what happened during COVID because generally speaking, we drink champagne to celebrate. Uh, when the global pandemic came along, obviously the champagne producers thought, oh my God, this is going to be potentially devastating. And they, they cut back supply, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was uh, there was um, the qualitative 2020 harvest that would have actually allowed a bigger production, but the producers decided not to do it because the, of the prospects looking so bad. And then, of course, 2021 was uh, quantity-wise such a tiny harvest that that it meant that the the um, the really the um, the tanks were basically empty of reserve wines and things like that. So, so it was it uh, it really was a surprise um, to the producers that the this, this, these moments of, you know, extreme times didn't mean um, stopping of consum- 
champagne consumption. I think it actually um, led uh, to a different consumption pattern because a lot before people were drinking uh, champagne in the restaurants and different events. But now it really started, you know, uh, you know, people, people's habits of drinking more champagne at home and, and also um, investing a bit more to, to, to drink very, very nice champagnes. I assume they cut back the production volumes that were permitted so that they avoided having a kind of lake of champagne effectively because that would have pushed the price down potentially. Uh, yes, definitely. There is there is that, but also it's a cash flow thing that if you're not, uh, they have to pay for the grapes uh, uh, immediately um, and, 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 you know, latest uh, quite soon. So, uh, and if they were not seeing much money coming in, um, they obviously a bit were forced to, to cut the volumes as well. Uh, your life is kind of immersed in champagne. Were you surprised by the appetite for champagne during the pandemic? Yeah, I think I a little bit was. I mean, but um, but you know, as you said, I'm in, immersed in champagne, and you know, it's it's a part of you know both good moments and bad moments. And I I think it was this old uh, saying that you know needs it in 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 victory uh, as well as in defeat. So I think it's uh, it's it has some comforting qualities. Oh, it most certainly does. Um, going back to your point about um, the uh, demand outstripping supply, the market uh, becoming overheated. Are you saying there, in very basic terms, that corners are being cut? Champagne can thank its uh, commercial um, success. I think um, you know uh, a lot for the consistency, uh, the non-vintages. You know the. Um, there has always been wine to to sell, so that you know you don't sell out one vintage and then there's a six months uh, gap uh, in getting the next one. So the non-vintage has really allowed Champagne to do that, and uh, and now I think there is such a huge demand in some cases that uh, that has come as a surprise that the, the it it might mean that some some um, houses have had to to shorten the the times of both um, on lease age, aging and also post disgorgement aging. And for those who really enjoy champagne and maybe know less about it and how it's made, just explain the potential impact of that shorter lease ageing, first of all. Yeah, well, the lease ageing sort of builds um, these sort of uh, champagne qualities. You, you know, it roundens the, the texture of champagne um, and also brings this aroma precursors of what we, we uh, associate with champagne, all these toasty, um, toasty, acacia, nutty type of uh, flavors. And uh, if you shorten it a lot, uh, you know, you can feel um, some of the impact. Uh, but I'd say that it's often a a wiser choice to shorten it from um, from the lease aging than from the post disgorgement aging because the the, um, the aging of champagne really changes at the moment of disgorgement um, so it starts its life in an in a um, more oxidative environment and here the the, the transition the, the transformation is much quicker actually so um, so it's best maybe to cut a little bit off the the lease aging but keep on that uh, that normal what they would like to do for non-vintage champagnes minimum three months uh, but rather six months um, aging post-disgorgement so that the wine uh, shows more expressive and ready um, when brought onto the market. But by the looks of it from what you've concluded from your uh, tasting uh, they have also some of them 
been reducing that post-disgorgement ageing as well. Yeah, and, and you know, it's with champagne, they often still don't mention the disgorgement times on the label, which I think they always should, so that even I would be, you know, better uh, better able to analyse where, where the change uh, comes from. But luckily, it's, um, it's a trend that is changing and more and more um, both growers and houses are putting the, the disgorgement dates on the uh, label because it is really essential information for, for, for those especially working professionally in the industry. Do you think consumers could be kind of uh, persuaded to take an interest in disgorgement dates as well? Uh, well, I, I would only think that a very, very interested, um, you know, knowledge-thirsty consumer would. Uh, for the others, I think it's it's really, really complicated. Essie Avalan, MW, and you can find her fascinating champagne report at Club Enologique. Just follow the link on the homepage at clubenologique.com. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Influential is a word that could be used to describe Michael Musbrugger too. He's the winemaker at Schloss Goebelsberg in Kamptal on the Danube, and he's chairman of the Österreichisch Traditionsfein Guter. He's a man on a mission to bring a unified classification system to the somewhat uh, complicated world of Austrian wine labelling. I caught up with him at Schloss Grafenegg, where this year's Ersterlagen, meaning Premier Crew, vintage releases were shown off. And I started by asking him to introduce his estate. Well, Schloss Goebelsberg is, uh, you know, one of the iconic estates in Austria. Um, it's one of the oldest estates uh, that that we have in Austria. Um, it's an estate that is linked to Cistercian uh, viticulture. Uh, you know, the, the, the Cistercians came in the 12th century from Burgundy all over Europe. And um, the Cistercians uh, that settled here in Austria, they got in 1171 one of uh, our vineyards on Heiligenstein and Geisberg. And uh, since then, we do have the recording, actually, on the whole development of these days. And that's the reason why we commemorated 850 years of viticulture, of monastic viticulture last year. You have to imagine in the in the 12th, 13th, 14th century, uh, monks were some of the only ones who could read and write, and therefore they were the carriers of scientific research. So monks basically were the ones who were trying to find out where are the best places to grow wine, how can we improve the the, the viticultural side of wine, how can we improve the winemaking? All these questions they carried out on a kind of scientific basis, and uh, and that's that's the that's one of the major reasons why monks were the ones who developed uh, all, uh, European viticulture in in, the, in in these centuries, you know, up to the time of secularization um, to such an extent. That's really interesting, makes a lot of sense. That said, uh, wine has changed a lot from the kind of wines that um, those monks were making. Um, just tell us about what you have set out to do during your own tenure at uh, Schloss Gobelsberg, because you have changed quite a lot, really, haven't you? Well, the estate has always been uh, playing a leading role in, in Austrian wineries. So basically, you know, we have a strong tradition, you know, we have a strong culture in, in viticulture. So this is basically, you know, what I have been continuing. 
Um, beside that, um, I started uh, quite early already uh, to occupy on historical winemaking. So on the question, how was wine made in, in, in the Greek-Roman times, in the Middle Ages, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And so I started in 2001 to, to do a wine that is related to the early 19th century winemaking, that is uh, somehow reflecting the pre-industrial times. It's a period, you know, where you're looking back to an empirical knowledge of 2000 years of, of winemaking on one side, on the other side, it's a period that is not influenced by the outcomes of industrialization. It's only starting around 1850 that winemakers and scientists are asking the very classical industrial question, how can we produce wine in bigger quantities and in a shorter period of time? And uh, the outcome is uh, that you find after 1850 uh, quite a series of innovations, you know, the first filtration machines, new pressing systems, uh, pumping, pasteurization, all these uh, technological innovations are starting to change the craftsmanship side of winemakers and is leading to the situation that we recall now as modern winemaking, you know. And there are always strengths and dangers on, on, on the other side. And, you know, what we have learned in the past decades is basically that the more techno technology you use and the more chemistry you use in, in the winemaking process, the more standardization you achieve in, in the wines. And so um, it's kind of pushing back, you know, this uh, this what we believe is so important in, in wine and in the expression of wine that wine is somehow reflecting its origin and and so I think you know and when you're looking to you know current developments uh, regarding the, the segment of uh, the segment uh, of what we call natural wines or orange wines it's a kind of an, a counter movement you know to to this kind of industrial developments that we had in the past hundred years and it's trying you know to find out how can we retain um, all these influences all these technologies and to get more individuality actually in 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 the expression of wine so this is basically you know the current current de developments and this is always, you know, uh, in, in the world of wine, you always have those developments uh, going in one direction and then you have a counter movement. And, and this is now currently what we see in, in, in the current situation. Yeah, beyond Austria, of course, um, uh, you know, all around the world, we're seeing that, that counter movement you talk about. So um, you have, um, with your colleagues, um, set out to um, make Austrian wine better understood around the world. Austrian wine has some some challenges in terms of, of uh, people understanding it around the world, doesn't it? Yes, of course. I mean, you, you know, Austrian viticulture um, belongs to the, the to the really old wine cultures within Europe. Uh, on one side, um, on the other side, due to the political developments after World War One, uh, Austrian viticulture was shrinked, you know, to about 10% of the original size. Uh, and that is giving certainly certain challenges, you know, especially in the communication, in the awareness. Uh, and uh, uh, so I think, I think that it's very important for Austrian wine uh, to develop uh, structures that can be also understood on an international level.
And so this is what you know we are trying to achieve uh, and what we tried to achieve in the, in the past uh, 10-20 years is to develop structures that can be a little bit easier understood on an international level. I think that due to all the developments also in France and in Italy and Spain, so the the, the 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 growing areas that are you know very much in the focus you know on, on an international level it's it's important you know that that we have structures that are kind of comparable and uh, the situation that we find here in Austria you know with a structure that we're looking to an industry that is based on family businesses um, and to a structure that is quite comparable to to the situation in Burgundy where you have due to our inheritance laws um, quite fragmented structures in our vineyards I think it's uh, it's wise you know to to go for structures that can be easily compared and and easily remembered on, on that stage it's um, impossible to talk about Austrian wine without mentioning the scandal of the 1980s because that has resulted in a kind of counterbalance, if you like, with some of the, the strictest um, laws around winemaking and, and quality in the world. Uh, just explain, for those a little younger than me or you, uh, just explain briefly um, what happened and what the impact of that has been in terms of what we have now. Well, I think, uh, I, I think the, the crisis of the mid-80s, uh, you know, was a, a, a big learning lesson. Uh, on one side, as you already said, it has been leading to some really severe and strong wine laws here in Austria and some very strict controls. Um, on the other side, the basement of, this, uh, of these developments uh, are related to, uh, uh, to drinking trends uh, basically in Germany. You have to explain that you know our drinking culture in Austria is related to enjoying wine always together with food. Therefore, the basement of Austrian viticulture has always been to produce dry wines. Because, you know, if, you, if you're enjoying wines together with food, then you basically need uh, uh, dry expressions uh, in, in, in wine. Um, however, uh, in Germany, uh, the culture of drinking wine is somehow completely different because they enjoy wine basically in the afternoon and after dinner. Therefore, they rather developed uh, a sweeter tongue. And uh, so the, the need for sweet wine production, uh, especially when you wanted to export, uh, was quite important. Now, the possibilities in producing sweet wine on a natural level is at some stage always limited and is always expensive. And, uh, you know, Germany is a very competitive market and so the pressure on producers, you know, became more and more severe. So this is why some producers and some traders basically um, started uh, to look out for possibilities um, to, to, to have the impression of sweetness in, in, in the wines. And um, this was uh, this was uh, uh, this was done by by uh, by glucol, uh, which is uh, something that um, you basically can drink without health um, uh, troubles and so on. And it's very it's very cheap. 
So they, they basically could, uh, could produce wines, you know, that somehow were cheap uh, and were sweet. So this is this was the basement actually of of all these uh, things, and of course this is not uh, ethically it's not you know a- according to the law and 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 uh, so it was good actually you know that uh, strong reactions came after that, and it was leading you know to a more awareness you know about you know what wine should be and you know where if you really should follow all the trends you know that have you that you have in in a, in a country so as as i said it was a, it was a learning lesson at the end michael musbrugger bringing a calm sense of context to the austrian wine crisis of the 1980s from which came new exacting standards exacting might also describe Daniel Primack, known to many wine lovers as the man from Zalto. He's a glassware obsessive who has devoted his career to wine glasses. And in a fascinating conversation, he explained to me that it's all about retro-nasal olfaction. Your, your flavour perception is your retro-back-of-the-nose-nasal olfaction sense. And that is, that is what the wine glass influences when you drink. And I can break that down a little bit more for you if you'd like. Well, I was going to say, how's this been tested then? Well, it's tested. There have been scientific studies, um, but the problem is we don't drink in a laboratory. So I, I've seen the odd article over the years where scientists have managed to remove the impact of the wine glass on your retronasal olfaction and therefore then say the wine glass makes no difference. But we don't drink in a laboratory. And if you look at the conditions that those uh, laboratory tests, uh, the conditions that were set, nobody drinks like that. You have to have the head in a fixed position and you have to do this, that and the other. Um, we, we drink in the normal world amongst friends in a busy environment with food, etc. Um, and uh, the, 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 the laboratory tests are, are those that, that, that can show it. But um, it's, all, it's, it's anecdotal. It's a, bit like, it's a little bit like wine storage. In the last 20, 30, 40 years, the various wine universities around the world have done studies to show that temperature and light affect wine. But it's been known for centuries that the way that wine has been stored affects its flavour. And it's been the same with wine glasses for a great many years. Um, the, the really niche end knew it, I would say, probably in the 70s. I don't, I've not read or heard of anything of people coming across this topic before, before the 70s. Um, and... It's anecdotal. We've all experienced, we all can experience. It is repeatable by changing the glass and keeping the wine the same at the same time. Um, Each day, your perception of flavour will vary. So uh, your test from one day to the next may change. But that's because of you, because of your hydration, because of your tiredness, because of your hunger, because of your overall health. But at that very moment where you pour the same wine into two, three, four different glasses side by side, you you yourself, and that's not you specifically, David, that's anybody listening, uh, you can see the difference it makes. And it doesn't have to be a brand like Zato or Riedel. You can do it with any variety of drinking vessel you have at home, and you will find that the wine tastes different in the different vessels. And as we know, better wine is more complex, and the better the wine, the greater the complexity, the greater the complexity, the bigger the difference. Yeah, someone I'm very fond of, Kate Hawkins, the... Uh writer for amongst others yeah. olive uh, magazines very interested in glassware and she's forever posting pictures of often quite 
sort of cheap looking glassware that she might have picked up in a charity shop or something. But she's always experimenting with tumblers and and, and different shapes and sizes. And um, and the, and the, the, the results are, are, are really quite fascinating. Yes, I admire her for doing that. She's a, she's a great ambassador for the difference any glass makes. Um, people who are less engaged or busy or, or don't find the time when they are then encouraged to do the test will be reminded or, or discover it for the first time that it does make a significant difference. Um, but uh, I always, with a new wine, put it in at least two glasses side by side to decide which glass I think that wine uh, performs better in. I'm right eight times out of 10, but sometimes I'll, 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 I'll encounter a new wine at home and I'll, I'll, I'll assume it's going to go better in glass X and it turns out to be better in glass Y. It's, it's a, it, my, my favorite analogy is about, it's about beef. Um, we, we go out to eat or we cook steak at home um, and we choose somewhere from rare to, to well done. And if you tried to explain that a rare, rare piece of beef or a well done piece of beef tastes different perhaps to a lifelong vegetarian who's never eaten beef before, um, try and explain to them the difference. It's the same piece of meat and time and temperature is the only variable. And yet it tastes, as we all know, dramatically, dramatically different. There is no perfect analogy, but um, it's the same stuff. And same thing with wine glasses. Wine glasses change the way that we perceive uh, the, 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 the flavour that we're going to enjoy. Mm, the steak uh, analogy is a good one because it's, it's nice and simple and relatable, except to vegetarians, as you say. But uh, mm -hmm. you talked about some of the laboratory uh, testing of, of this theory. And, yes, you remind uh, me of one more I must tell you about, but sorry, David, carry on. Well, yeah, well, do. Uh, but I want to throw this at you because um, Professor Charles Spence, I think yes. it was he, who said that um, uh, glassware was uh, irrelevant uh, to perception. And, and he, he tested this with, I think, with people with their heads in clamps or something. That's the one. Mm. That's the one, that's the, the, the main one. I mean, there've been others that have repeated that, uh, that experiment. But yes, he's, so he's a wonderful ambassador. His book, The Perfect Meal, is, 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 a, is a very necessary read for anyone that enjoys dining out or, well, eating at home, but it's mostly about dining out, I, I feel. Um, there are many, many aspects to his book. The, the, the material of the cutlery, the size of the plate, the colour of the plate. The rim of the plate, the lighting in the room, the aroma in the room, the noise. Perhaps you've read it, David, I don't know. No, um, I should. Oh, it's a wonderful book. Um, and and the, the analogy of that book with the impact of, on glassware, of glassware on drinking is, is, is perfect. Um, but yes, he was one of the many, many, many years ago where, yes, he did that thing where he removed all the other variables um, and therefore the wine glass had a far smaller or, or immeasurable impact on the drinking. But that goes back to the point I mentioned earlier, which is we don't drink like that. None of us do. We are variable. We are human. We are in movable environments. So, yes, in a laboratory, you can take away a great many factors uh, to isolate one thing. But nobody drinks in a, in a laboratory environment under such a controlled situation. The test or the, the experiment I was going to uh, mention that you reminded me of. Again, it's, it's a good 10 years plus. I think you can find it on but with a Google search. The Japanese uh, or Japanese university invented a camera that could photograph smell and they um, showed the layering inside a wine glass based on particle size and the volatile organic compounds, which are the bouquet or the aroma part of wine, um, are the opposite. You know, your cereal box, you know, when you get to the bottom of the cereal, you've got all the little bits and all the big bits sit on top. Oh, yeah. It's very disappointing when you get to the bottom. Yes. 
It's the other way around with smell. The, the smallest particles float up and the, the larger, more complex molecules sit lower down. If you, leave, if, you, if you swirl the wine, then leave it for a short while, were you able to see the smell, you would see the lighter, the lighter molecules floating and the heavier molecules sitting closer back down to the liquid. And when you drink, you change the speed and concentration of the um, volatile organic compounds going up your nose and, uh, and, and into your throat. And the, the camera photograph from, from many, many years ago that I still remember was, was another sort of light bulb moment that enabled you to see the thing you can't see sitting on top of the liquid. When I um, look at a wine glass with some wine in it, and the rule with any decent wine glass is you only fill to, a, to the widest point, which is hopefully 25 to 30% of the total height from, from, from the bottom up. In my mind, I'm picturing the rest of the flavour sitting above the liquid. That's the bit I'm most fascinated about. Uh, and uh, there's a joke that says um, a glass is neither half empty nor half full. It's just completely full of two different things. Yes. And so it's the, it's the effect of the, the shape and the volume of the glass uh, changing those VOCs, those volatile organic compounds that you cannot see, but the Japanese camera can, on top of the liquid that's going to impact your enjoyment of the thing that you're drinking. Another good reason not to overtop a glass, which is Very one much of so. my pet peeves. Um, yes. So um, you're talking um, quite a bit about uh, perception. And of course, for, for, uh, for all of us, perception is reality, really. Um, but that's Indeed. a sort of philosophical thing. But, uh, but how important, because these glasses you're uh, retailing are, are very beautiful in a, um, a very Teutonic kind of way. Mm. Um, so, uh, so, so they do look magnificent as you, as you hold it and as you sort of admire it and bring it to your mouth. Uh, how important then is that sort of aesthetic uh, to your enjoyment of the wine? Variable to the individual. I was taken by surprise some years ago. We did a small amount of market research. I think we asked a couple of hundred people what was the most important thing about a wine glass. And if I'd had money to bet on the outcome, and coming from the perspective that I come from, I thought the majority of people were going to say the impact on the flavour. Forget what it looks like, forget what it feels like. If it makes this bottle of wine taste optimal, that has to be number one. And I think it was about 80% of respondents said aesthetic first, which I completely understand uh, now and I've understood for many years as I've got more experience and spoken to more people. But a very small segment of the drinking population can about nothing but the flavour and the vast majority of the people care far more about the context and therefore as in Charles Spence's book who talks about plates and cutlery and colour the aesthetic of the wine glasses forget my brand I'm not specifically here to talk about my brand although I'm very happy to um, I'm, I'm here to talk about a love of wine glasses and, and try and encourage other people to embrace wonderfully functional wine glasses because function and form are the, are the two aspects to what we're talking about um, I think it's wonderful that they are beautiful. I would be disappointed and probably not as enthusiastic if they weren't pretty to my eye. But as you said, uh, when you asked the question, perception is individual. Perception of flavor is individual in terms of our history and our genetics. Um, perception of, of beauty of art is very, very subjective. And, and again, down to that individual. Daniel Primack on the way a wine glass influences our perception of that wine. To Rum next, and one of its biggest names, Ian Burrell, 
a global rum ambassador. He's on the senior judging panel at the IWSC, and he's also co-founded Equiano, a brand that strives to put something back into the places from which it sources its innovative rum. He explained the inspiration for the brand. Well, Equiano is is named after um, someone I learned about um, when I was very young uh, here in the UK, uh, a guy named uh, Aluda or Alauda, Equiano. Now, Equiano was uh, an amazing, an amazing um, freedom fighter, abolitionist, entrepreneur, author, writer, um, an influencer of, of his particular time in the in the 17th century, um, sorry, the 18th century. Equiano was about 11 years old when he was um, kidnapped and then and sold into slavery um, in West in West Africa. He was then sent to Barbados, where he was then traded and then sent to the US for a minute um, and then sent to the UK. He was given to um, sold to a captain on the, of a ship in, in the in the UK, and then he brought him to his family in I think it was in south south of England somewhere. Um, and he grew up with a family. He learned English, and then went back on the ships um, to learn his craft because he was very knowledgeable, very quick to learn, learned English very quickly. Uh, and by the time he was twenty-one, uh, only ten years later, he had saved enough money uh, from trading uh, in the Caribbean, working on the ships, um, to buy his own freedom. That cost him about forty pounds, which at, at that particular time um, in the seventeen sixties would have been about uh, four years' wages. <laughs> so yeah, that saved a lot of money, and then used that freedom to come back to England to educate uh, Brits uh, and uh, about what was happening in the Caribbean in the slave trade in the Caribbean, and wrote a book about his story. It was the first book written by an African at that particular time where his memoirs uh, were documented. And that book went on to become a nine-time bestseller, translated into several languages. Um, it was called The Interesting Narrative of Alauda Recuano. He actually did a UK tour where he travelled around the UK with the book and explaining to Brits about what it was like to be uh, an African enslaved and what it was like to b- grow up in the, in the colonies. Because a lot of British people didn't know. There was no internet back then. So they only saw just the stories from certain rich people. And it was all painted in the very nice picture. When they heard about the real story, they were, they were in uproar um, as such. And that led on to people like Wilbur Wilberforce um, getting hold of the book and then using that um, as well as other politicians in Parliament to help with the Transatlantic Slave Act of 1807, which which abolished uh, the movement or the 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 people trafficking of, of Africans over the, um, over the over the oceans to the Caribbean. So a very important person, one that not much people know about, very few people know about. And I felt, well, if we put his name on a bottle, that might get people to actually do a little bit of research and find out who he was or what's this Equiano. And it was, it was a way for me to actually uh, honour him um, and his name. And also in the rum industry, when I look at the rum industry, there aren't too many of us who are uh, women or men of colour um, or people of colour, on the bottles of spirits, even though they were there at the start to help create those particular brands. So it'd be nice to actually see in years to come uh, people going into a bar and say, yeah, I'll have an Equiano and Coke, the same way they'll, they'll say, I'll have a Jack Daniels and, and this, or a Jim Beam and that, or a Johnny Walker and that. Um, I just wanted to put my little bit of mark in and talk, talk a little bit about history um, of Equiano. Um, and also, it was, it was poignant because he did empower himself by selling rum which is a, a a really nice way to actually come around go around in full circle using rum to help with that liberation wow what a guy and this concept of having to save up 
your hard-earned cash to buy your freedom is just yeah. uh, blows the mind, doesn't it? But it there does, we go. Does. It's it does, it, yeah. it's it's shocking. But um, yeah. it's great to hear you talking about him as as an influencer as yes. well, because <laughs> I mean he was yeah. he was, but that's not how we currently think of influencers necessarily, is it? No, but he was. Yeah, he he did lots of talks and seminars and presentations. Um, he teamed up with uh, some other notable Africans that lived in London um, at a particular time. They called, them, called themselves the Sons of Africa, and they were influencers, influencers of other Africans that lived in the UK, but other um, local local British people that lived that he influenced. As I said, he influenced people like Wilbur Wilberforce and other politicians um, as well. Uh, the day uh, instead of going online and looking at the influencers there, you had to go to a, a square and hearing someone talk with their book in hand as such. That was the internet of, of the days uh, such. So yeah, if we do look at, if we do look at um, uh, his life uh, back then and uh, equated to what's happened today. Yes, he was an influencer. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure he was. Um, tell us about what's in the bottle then, because we've talked about the name and the inspiration. It's a great name. It's a great choice. Yeah. Uh, what's the mm. rum itself? So the rum itself is something that's unique. Again, uh, when I'm talking about rums, I'm always talking about regions, Jamaica rums, Barbados rums, Cuban rums, Martinique rums. When you look at the history of rum or where rum has come from, because there were, there were many, many sugarcane distillates made all the way around the world, but it was it was when the culmination of enslaved Africans and British knowledge of spirits and the technology of the Europeans coming from South America all got together in the island of Barbados. That's when rum actually began got its it got its its spurs as such in fact the name rum came from an old an old english word from devonshire uh called rumbullion and that was that was a word to describe someone that got a bit boisterous and noisy and loud and they actually said it was an uproar and tumult as such but rumbullion was condensed down to the word rum and this is like circa um 1650s as such so rum is a a a barbados spirit as such but some of that knowledge know-how came from africa so it was, it was, I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if we got some of, some rums from Africa and brought that to the Caribbean, where that evolution is, and blended those together? Because rums are normally blends of either one distillery, one area, um, or one region. Um, so yeah, I said, my ethnicity here in the UK is African-Caribbean. So I said, oh, why not create an African-Caribbean rum? Hasn't been done. Why not be the first? So yeah, so I was look, looked around to see which, which rums in the African continent would be good enough to put into a blend of rums from the Caribbean and looked at East Africa. Uh, Mauritius, um, because some great rums coming out of that island there. Uh, there are some good rums coming out of South Africa, some new rums coming out of Ghana, which we hopefully will be using in the future. But Mauritius um, ticked all the boxes. Uh, and then we sent that to Barbados, uh, again, to the home of rum, to a distillery called Foursquare. And Foursquare has um, been voted the best rum makers over the last five years. Um, they make some excellent, excellent liquid. So the blender there blends the rums from Mauritius, uh, with the rums from Barbados to create a unique uh, blend that we call Equiano. It's bottled uh, in Barbados and then sent here to the UK. And our rum makes the same journey as a louder Equiano made from Africa to Barbados to the UK. And again, that was a conscious decision to, to make that journey. Um, it makes it a little bit more expensive to make, but it was part of the story that we wanted to tell um, of that 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 that, che- that triangle disc, that triangle trade, that triangle journey from Africa, Caribbean to the UK. Ian Burrell talking about Equiano rum. My thanks to him and also to Hugh Johnson, OBE, Margaret Rand, Essie Avalan, MW, Michael Musburger and Daniel Primack. Hope you enjoyed uh, those great names. Uh, Do join us next week for the start of 
series eight of the drinking hour uh, with another great name alice lascelles the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world 